0: All right, well, if you could begin making your way back to your seats, that would be great. And as you do so, grab your Bibles. And if you don't have one with you, maybe the digital version in your pockets not loading correctly this morning, you're going to find a hardback version of the scripture somewhere. in your general vicinity. I think it's blue and it's going to be in one of the chairs in front of you. Um, But uh, grab those Bibles and head on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 5 and 6 this morning. And what we're doing and what we began last week, what we'll continue this week and finish up next week, is looking at the way love is defined in the scriptures and in particular this passage and we are slowing things down and instead of trying to jam all 15, 16 characteristics of love into one massively long but probably deeply ineffective sermon, we're going to slow it down a little bit and take about five or six each week and so last week we hit the first five together. This morning we're going to tackle six and then next week we'll finish up the remainder, the remaining ones. Um, These are not in your bulletins this morning but they were last week although we do have some copies available and this is just the text. First Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through eight, and if you want one to just have and put somewhere where you can see it and read it and remind yourself of it and work on memorizing it, those three high top tables have some on there. And Julie Walter put that together for us before she went on vacation. And we're grateful for uh, you being creative because some of us aren't, and so it's good that we have creatives with us. And so what it is that we're trying to get our minds wrapped around is what does God say about what love is? Love is something in our culture we hear a ton about. It's it's sung all over the place. I mean in some ways the best songs are love songs. And maybe it's the songs that express the heartbreak of love gone bad. Maybe it's some of the songs that you would sing to serenade, one that you are in love with. Uh, But some of the best songs written are love songs. Uh, Love is a whole genre of movie. We're right now in the, the horror thriller uh, season of movies because it's October and we've all seen those advertisements and commercials. Um, but eventually, once we get through October, we're gonna have we're gonna have what uh, what's probably best known as like the Hallmark season, um, where it's just like sappy Christmas movie or Christmas movies that the plots the same for every one of them. Um, but you just kind of feel drawn in to every one of them. And, uh, and it's just kind of this, uh, it's like a, a love story with snow. Um, and so that's what we'll have. And then uh, we're going to get to January and eventually like the next round of romantic comedies are going to start working their way out. Because Valentine's Day will be upon us. And uh, then at some point along the way we're all going to remember that it's not just cold and snowy. It will get warm and the, the, the action Movies will come back out, and there will be a whole new round of like Marvel movies and superhero flicks for the summer sequence. But all of that to say, this we're not talking about the Hollywood's seasonal attractions. This morning, uh, love and those ideas show up all over our lives. It dominates TV shows. It dominates movies. It dominates music, and 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 yet. The way the scriptures describe love is not the emotional love that by and large dominates all of those mediums. What you would by and large find and hear and see and read in any of the different cultural ways this gets worked out is just a very emotional love. The scriptures describe love in a very different way. And it's not that it's without emotion, it's just that emotions are not foundational. They're real, God gave us the capacity to feel. One of the things I try to tell my kids when we're working through things is that your emotions are real, but they may not be true. Sometimes we we feel things about people that they're real feelings, but they may not be in line with truth. Or how God defines love to be. And so beyond kind of the emotional aspect of love, the scriptures give us a description of what love is that is foundational. It's a description of that we can we can hang our hats on. Quite frankly, it's a description and an unpackaging of love that we all fall short of. And just working through the different characteristics we'll look at this morning was reminded this week of just all of the ways I fall short on just about every one of these things. And, and yet in the scriptures we see God excelling perfectly in every one of these things. And so that's, that's the big idea as we try to get our minds wrapped around love that we understand that this is first and foremost an expression of who God is. And we're commanded to, to be like him, to treat others like he has treated us, to treat others like he treats them. And so we have this description of love given to us in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 8 that, that gives us some really specific ways to unpack what love is. And, and love's all of these things. It's not just some of these things sometimes and some of these things other times. It's it's all of these things and God is all of these things to us. And so uh, in, in some ways to summarize the big idea, last week we said this, because God is, we must be. And we looked at the first five, because God is patient, we must be patient. Because God is kind, we must be kind. Because God does not envy, we must not envy. Because God does not boast or is not arrogant, we must not be those things. Because God is, we must be. And so in verses 5 and 6, we have the next six characteristics of love. And in our English Bibles, these read like descriptive words. Now there's not like a, uh, a grammar guide alongside of the verses, but they read like adjectives. They read like words that are describing what's happening and what love is. Um, But the way they were written by the man who wrote this letter, they're actually verbs. So built into even the very description of love is action. It's not just something that we can understand or have a description of. It's an action that should be true of us. But if they're verbs given, then there are probably ways that we find ourselves naturally inclined against. And one of the ways that we can just kind of unpack some of the different commands in the Bible is that when, when God says do something, it's probably a good thing to just go, I'm going to be inclined to not do it. That's why he's commanding me to do it. And when God says, don't do something, it's a kind of a safe bet to think I'm naturally going to be inclined to do what he's told me not to do. And so these verbs are going to be ones that we're going to naturally be inclined away from. Perhaps some more than others, Perhaps you've got patience nailed down, but, but maybe envy is something you struggle with, or vice versa. And You might find that you've got some you're a little bit more susceptible to than others, but you're going to find, I think, if you're just honest with yourself. There's an inclination in your heart to do against and do what God says not to do. So as we unpack this... We're going to try to apply them. We're going to try to make sense of them. But there's, a, there, there's about a hundred different ways each of these verbs and descriptions of love can be applied. Um, because just about every relationship with we, we have, whether it be a spouse or children or neighbors or coworkers or people on a sports team or parents of the other kids on your kid's sports team, whatever it might be, is going to be a different opportunity to express. And live out these actions of love. And so to try to unpack them and, and make sense of them in every area is beyond our scope this morning. But it's not beyond God's scope. It's not beyond what he's able to do. So to that end, let's pray. And then we'll go to verses 5 and 6 and try to unpack and understand these next six characteristics. These next six action words that describe What love is. Would you join me? Lord, we to that end pray now and ask that you would help us make sense of what you have said. That we would understand what love is. God, I pray that you would help us to see where perhaps we fall short in living out these action words God, help us to see where you are the perfect example, and that because you are, we must be. God, we pray that you'd help us to unpack and understand more of your love for us as we even think through these verses. God, we've been singing about that this morning. We praise you for it. We've, We've gathered in the name of Jesus to celebrate his work in our lives and your love for us demonstrated through him. And God, we pray that you would make us more like him. And that as we spend time now in your word, that that would be accomplished. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Let's go to verses 5 and 6 and just read the characteristics and then we'll we'll fly back and and begin breaking them down. Let's go to verse 4 and we'll just read the whole list and then go to verses 5 and 6. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. If you're wondering, this was not the building that the electrical work was done in. So I'm not quite sure what the Browns are for. But the first characteristic we have for love is that it is not rude. Love is not rude. This word rude means uh, disgraceful or unbecoming. It means to speak or behave in an un. Becoming manner. And uh, for those of you familiar with the military, there, there's a whole section in the UCMJ, the, the military's code of justice, called conduct unbecoming. And it's this catch all spot within the military guidelines and bylaws that if if you do something that your commanding officer has deemed to be unbecoming of the uniform you wear there is consequences for that and it's intended to be very vague in general to be this catch-all umbrella section within the military justice code to do this and to put an emphasis on this. And that's, that's kind of the idea that our, our actions and our words give grace rather than be disgraceful. And So think about it this way. This is, it's an unfair question, so I'll acknowledge that out of the gate. But think about it this way. If, if, if those in your life whether they know the Lord or not, if those in your life, whether they know the Lord or not, had no Bible and had no one else in their lives who followed Jesus, would they understand by looking at your actions and hearing your speech who Jesus is? Would your speech and would your actions give grace or would they be disgraceful? Like if you were all they had, would you reflect well the person you'd say you follow? Or would your behavior be unbecoming to being a believer? See, this, this idea of rude is that our, our speech and our actions are ones and words that give grace rather than be disgraceful. This word, rude, is only used twice in the entire New Testament. The other spot it's used is in 1 Corinthians 7. And it's used there to reference the relationship between a fiancé, a a man and a woman who are engaged to be married. And so it, it carries with it the idea of lewdness, unbecoming behavior in that sense as well. So when we're thinking about words and actions, do they give grace? Do they they celebrate what God celebrates? Or do your words and your actions celebrate what would break the heart of God? Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4.29, I think the ideas are related even though the words might be different. Let no corrupting talk. Come out of your mouths. That word corrupting there means diseased or bad or rotten. Think about eating a piece of rotten fruit. Comes out pretty quick after it goes in. Because it's just not good. Lo, let no diseased, rotten talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. As fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I think the idea of being rude and how love is not rude is that there are actions and there are words that celebrate the things of God. They they give life. And there are words and there are actions that do the very opposite. And we're called... To give life with our speech. To have our speech be for the building up and to be speech that gives grace. And I think the actions certainly follow along the same lines as well. Love is not rude. Secondly, love does not insist on its own way. The idea here is, is striving for its own Advantage. Now, this is the it's the it's the sense of being demanding for your benefit, not the benefit of the others, not the benefit of others. And I want to just kind of describe the differences there in a a funny way, okay? Because as a dad, I need to be demanding with my kids about some things, okay? So it's it's not wrong for me to say, "You will not only eat ice cream for dinner." Like that, that's a good thing. I can be demanding. I can insist on my own way. I should do it kindly and with patience and all the other characteristics of love. But it, it, it's, it's, it's not a failure of love here for me to say, kids, you will not eat ice cream for dinner. you got to eat your vegetables first. Now, where this now shifts is that if I proclaim in my household, that the only ice cream we will ever eat is chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream because that's the only ice cream that I believe is worth eating, I'm now getting a little bit closer to insisting on my own way for my benefit, not the benefit of others, And we, we kind of had a moment like that not too long ago where I was like, hey, let's take the kids to Martin's. Let's go and get some ice cream. And, and we went in. We, we came out. And I, don't, I, don't, I think Carrie was in the car with some of the kids. And I took some in and whatnot. And she's like, what would you get? And I was like, I got cookie dough. She looks at me. She goes, you're so boring. I was like, what do you mean? Like, there's no other ice cream worth eating. And so the next time we did that, they turkey hell out a two for five. So let the kids get something with a lot of color. It was one of the ones we got. And then we got cookie dough because that needed to be bought as well. So the idea here is insisting on your own way for your own advantage. Jesus perhaps is the greatest example of this. And in Philippians 2 we're told that let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Don't insist on your own way. Think like this, and think like Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. That's love that does not insist on its own way. That's love that sacrifices, surrenders. So the person who might insist on their own way is the person trying to manipulate to always get what they want. They're the inward calculating Person. It's just life's like a giant chess game for them. And I'm going to get this person to kind of do that and that person to do this because I want this. There's, there's a manipulation there. It, it might be the person who has a different set of rules for themselves than they do for other people. They're insisting on their own way. They hold themselves to a different standard where it's okay if they get away with a couple things, but oh, heaven forbid you get away with the same things. It might be the person who's always just ready to argue their point. Because they've got to win. Gotta insist on their own way. In First Corinthians chapter ten, Paul says this and it just summarizes it pretty succinctly for us let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor love does not insist on its own way it has has vision and eyesight for others even when you gotta buy different ice cream than cookie dough love's not irritable the idea here is it's not easily provoked Some of your translations might actually say that, not easily provoked. And and it's very closely related to patience. And as we thought last week and defined the word patience, which is the first action word we're given about love, the idea there was patience bears up under provocation. So somebody's doing something... And that something is, is, is an irritant or a frustration to some degree. And you have demonstrated patience because of it. Well, being irritable is very closely related to that. You're not easily provoked. And again, I think of what Jesus did and how he's described. And, and even some of the prophecies related to him. And in Isaiah 53, we're told that he was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he not, or opened not his mouth. Well, there's actually a scene in the final hours of Jesus' life that gives us perhaps a little bit of insight into what Isaiah was prophesying there. It's not the only place it could have applied, but I think it's probably the most profound place that it would apply. And so Jesus has been arrested. He was in the garden. He was praying. Judas comes with all the soldiers. There's there's a bunch of them. And they arrest Jesus. And he's going back and forth between different rulers. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That's the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. That's about 600 soldiers. The way battalion is used here in in first century, that would have been about 600 men. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed. That, 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 think of like a cat's tail in a marsh. Okay? And I don't think of like a club per se. The idea of a reed would be something a little bit more flimsy And so it's more of a taunting strike than it is a blow. And they were spitting on him. And they were kneeling down in homage. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put clothes, his own clothes on him. And they led him away to be crucified. I think it's Luke that records for us that as they were hitting him, they were yelling, Prophesy, tell us who hit you. yet he opened not his mouth. If there was ever a reason for anybody to be fully justified, to just kind of let it all hang out in the moment, and to do it perfectly, which you and I are incapable of doing, it's, it's Jesus in this moment. And yet he opened not his mouth. Love is not irritable, it's not easily provoked. It, it, it's, think about it this way, and, and, and I know people like this. I've got moments like this myself where you kind of feel like you're walking on eggshells around them. feel like you're perhaps yourself with those around you. You never really know perhaps what type of mood the, the other person is in. You're not sure what's going to set them off, when they're going to be set off. Maybe to positively define it would be this way. There's a consistency of temperament. Like there's a mood and, a, and, and, a, and an approach to life and the circumstances of life that, that is consistent. And it's level-headed. And there's not an explosion at any moment ready to occur It's the person who's able to distinguish big things from little things. They're not confusing mountains with molehills, even though molehills are really frustrating. Like, I praise my dog all over the place when he comes up with a mole in the backyard. He gets all sorts of treats, because I want him to get every one of them. But we're not confusing mountains with molehills here. There's a consistency of temperament That takes place. And and I think overarchingly so, there's a there's a value and a dignity placed on other people that's not forgotten. And so when the moment of frustration does happen, the person who's not irritable is able to remind themselves and remember that no, this is. This is someone made in the image of God. This is someone who has worth and dignity. And it it doesn't really matter that they spilled something on the dining room table. The way I speak to them needs to reflect the way God deals with me. Love's not irritable. It's not easily provoked. Love's not resentful. Keeps no records of wrongs your translations may say that this this word resentful it's actually an accounting term and it's the idea of a ledger credits on the left debits on the right perhaps think of your checkbook at home where you just you just record what column everything goes in and so if you if you do something that offends somebody the resentful person is going to Put that in the debit column. If you've done something to benefit that person, they're going to put it in the credit column. And your standing with them really largely depends on where you shake out on the minuses and the pluses. The resentful person records and calculates. This is the person that's keeping a mental list of all the things that you have ever done wrong to them. and they're going to also be pretty ready and willing to bring them back up when the time seems right to them. I officiated a wedding a couple weeks ago, and so this summer I had premarital counseling with that couple. And this is one of the things we've got to talk about in premarital counseling because if for any of you that have ever been married, you, you know that you're going to get sinned against. It cuts both ways. And so there's lots of opportunities to give forgiveness and there's going to be lots of temptation to not let it go. One of the things that we got to talk about in those moments is that, hey, when, 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 not if, when you sin against one another and you, you work through forgiveness and you work through reconciliation, you can't hold on to the resentment that might be there. God doesn't do this for us. We've got to think just a little bit, a little theologically here for a moment because God's all-knowing. He knows every detail of the past. He knows every detail of the present. He doesn't forget things in the sense that we consider forgetfulness to, to happen. He doesn't know where, you know, he doesn't forget where he placed his keys, for example. But... The scriptures tell us that he'll not remember our sins. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. He separates us from our sins. And in Psalm 103, he does not deal with us according to our sins. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So let, let's just kind of think about this because we have this cliche statement in our culture, this expression of, of what I would just say is sentiment that, that sounds good but is terribly impractical. And so the, the expression statement is this, forgive and forget. It's kind of a load of baloney. Because if you've ever been deeply wounded, you probably know that you're not ever going to forget that. The resentful person hangs on and remembers. The one who's not resentful forgives and chooses to not hold against. And I can just tell you from personal experience, that's something that you might just have to work through all day, every day. You might find there's seasons where you have a little bit more traction in that regard than other seasons. I won't give you the details, but years ago, I mean 15 years ago, Carrie and I were were deeply wounded by, by somebody that we were out at school together with. And, and, and kind of every once in a while, every two, three, four years, this person would say something that would kind of just kind of scratch open the scab and, and the wounds would, would kind of be made fresh all over again. And, and, and we, had to, we had to work through just forgiveness. And quite frankly, there was no reconciliation because I had a conversation with this person one night and said, hey, we, we've forgiven you. And the response I was given was, well, I don't even know what I needed to be forgiven for. Okay, we're, we're, we're on totally different wavelengths here. But if I hear that person's name, see a picture, it all just comes flooding back. To be resentful puts all of those things back in the debit category. Gives a root for bitterness to work its way deep into my soul again love is to say you know what no I've forgiven that person and I'm going to choose to not hold that against them and in that sense we need to just distinguish that that forgiveness is different than reconciliation forgiveness is something that only takes one person to do reconciliation takes two because it takes both people at the table to have a conversation forgiveness doesn't and to not be resentful is to forgive and then choose to not hold on. And love does this. And so the 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 person who's not resentful is gonna work real hard at keeping short lists. They're gonna they're gonna be merciful as they have received mercy. Well, the next and final two are really closely related to one another. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The idea here, I think, is largely formed by the word truth that shows up here. Because wrongdoing is the antithesis of truth. And so, like in a macro level, big picture what we're saying is that love rejoices in what is true and celebrates what is true. And in that sense, celebrates everything that God would uphold as true and good. So in contrast to that, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It doesn't rejoice in what's not true. It doesn't celebrate what. God would not celebrate. Psalm 1 gives us a picture of this person. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Kind of think of going with the flow, just caught up in, in maybe what culture has to offer and the prevailing winds of thought and philosophy. Just kind of, uh, you're just going with the flow. Blessed is the man or woman who does not stand in the way of sinners. there's There's some slowing down that has taken place. Perhaps it's not just caught up in the prevailing flow, but being a little bit more influenced. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There you would have the idea, perhaps even the picture, of being instructed by those who would shake their fist at God and scoff at Him. So blessed is the man or woman who doesn't walk that way or sit that way or stand that way, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law, he or she meditates day and night. See, I think that's the idea of rejoicing in the truth and not rejoicing in wrongdoing. See, we celebrate what God celebrates. We, we say no to what God would say no to. We don't celebrate what God would say no to. So, let's just try to think through this in some ways that may hit home. Regardless of what political party you align with, Christians should not celebrate, condone, or dismiss lies or underhanded tactics because the ends do not justify the means. Like, we don't get a pass and saying, oh, it's okay because. Now, that's rejoicing and wrongdoing. And, like, I, I, I don't care if you get all nine seats on the Supreme Court, love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Whatever side of the aisle you sit on. Because there's things that God will not celebrate and does not condone. And as his people, we are to not celebrate and condone those things. We don't watch, listen, read, whatever it might be. Media. That celebrates the things God hates. Because we don't rejoice in wrongdoing. Oh, that show's so great, but if you gotta throw a butt in there, you, you might be rejoicing in wrongdoing, not rejoicing in the truth. Love does not try to coax. Someone in to doing what God has said not to do. So, teens, peer pressure, it's real. It's real for adults. Perhaps it's a little bit more felt in your worlds. But love doesn't pressure into wrongdoing, it stands and it rejoices. In truth. See, and God's called us to be people of truth, people that celebrate truth, people that love truth, that want truth, because He's the author of truth. And in Him there is no lie. And so love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices or celebrates truth, because those things are of and from. God. The last passage that I just want to put on the screen for us before the band comes up is from the Gospel of John, and I believe this is the very last verse in the entire Gospel of John, and this verse informs the song that we're going to sing next as we sing about the love of God. And the big idea, again, has been because God is, we must be. And God is so much more than 16 characteristics or action words. He's demonstrated his love for us in so many more ways than even the scriptures record for us. And John says as much to that end. And now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It's kind of just a profound word picture but God has loved us with an unending steadfast patient kind love and he calls us to love others in that way would you pray with me as the band comes up well God we pray that you would help us to do that 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 would be the love we demonstrate to one another. God, I know there are moments and there are people in our lives when it, it is a, it's a challenge. And so God, we pray that you wouldn't just be our example to follow, but you'd be the one that we'd look to for strength to obey. And we thank you for your love for us and we ask that you would help us in turn reflect that same love to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.